I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. So that is a pretty big book towards the end of your Bible. So you got the book of Revelation and start going backwards and you should hit Hebrews rather quickly. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. We're not going to look at that passage in detail as we often do, uh, but it is going to be the reading that we're going to have on video in just a few moments so that you can follow along and then we'll come back to it at the end of the sermon. Uh, if you're using a smartphone or tablet device, we are using the NIV, the New International Version, so you can follow along in that. All right, so um, we're going to pray a prayer of illumination, asking God, the Holy Spirit, to make His Word plain and clear and empower us. And this prayer is based on Hebrews chapter 12, so please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so easily distracted but by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, we can hear you, and you can renew our minds as we turn to your word. Help us to fix our minds on Jesus. Teach us his way and deliver us from our own way. We pray this in the name of the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of your throne, O God. Amen. Let's watch the scripture being read by one of our five ochres. One through three. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. All right, so we are in our third week of our series on Christian sexuality, where we're talking about Jesus, sex, and gender. In week one, we talked about grace and truth, which describes the posture in which we want to come to this whole subject uh, every week of this series. And it not only describes the posture that we want to come as a church, it's the posture that we want to see reflected in our homes and in our conversations, in our friendships, and in our uh, relationships. So it's really important that we get this posture correct. Uh, Christians and the church, just simply in our culture, we just don't have a whole lot of credibility when it comes to talking about sexual issues. Uh, so we, we come from a, a, from a place of, as fellow strugglers, uh, from a place of having experienced God's grace and continuing to experience God's grace. At the same time, we don't get a pass on truth. We don't get a pass on what God says in His Word, what God has designed us uh, for, what God wants for us and for our lives and bringing glory to Him. So we should have uh, an approach to the subject where we hold to biblical convictions without, without moving beyond grace, always holding on to grace. We need it. We're all sexually broken. Um, the, the, we're all on the same plane when it comes to the subjects of sexuality. We should also approach this humbly, as we've been talking about, as a league of sinners, not as a group of people who have it all together telling other people how to live. Week two of the series... Uh, we talked about authority and Scripture. The authority of God and the Scripture is not some kind of restrictive thing that comes into our lives, and it's not just some kind of suggestions that God makes that are kind of irrelevant to our lives. It's the path to freedom, and it's the path to the life that God wants us to live. And we're going to keep circling around that as we go throughout this series. We pursue what God says in His Word because it's God speaking through His Word to all of us in all of our situations. So, in the first two weeks, we didn't talk about sex at all in our series, and uh, it's pretty much going to be the same thing again this week. We're going to continue to just kind of lay the foundation for this whole series, for what we need in our hearts as we approach this, this subject. Um, because if we don't have that posture, we're not going to be able to speak into each other's lives on this. So, I realize that we have 
guests every week at Five Oaks. Also, that Five Oakers don't always make it. Nobody makes it every single week uh, to worship, and not everybody who misses a week always goes back and listens to the sermon or catches the service online. All that being the case, I want to say what we've covered the last couple of weeks and what we're covering this week is so this week is so foundational that I really want to implore you to go back and listen to the last two weeks if you missed either one. And it's just so absolutely important to what we're doing. And so you can go back online, you can watch the whole service online, you can uh, you can listen to the sermon at our podcast. For some of you uh, who may not be aware, our podcast changed location, so we're not updating our old podcast address. This has gone on for quite a while. Um, but our new podcast address or a new podcast is called Five Oaks Church Podcast. So uh, that would be what you want to look for if you want to just listen to the sermon uh, on a week that you miss. Well, uh, after this week, we have one more preliminary, one more foundational, although we do get into the subject of sex, we're going to be talking about sex and marriage next week. And then we're taking a break, going back to Romans, then we have an Advent series, and then as we start out the new year, we'll cover four more weeks uh, where we're going to get into a little bit more of the nitty-gritty of some of the issues and questions that we have. So today we're talking about shame and forgiveness. And you may be wondering why. Why shame and forgiveness this week? Uh, the people who put together the curriculum that our youth are using, we're following not every single week. We're going to do about eight of the 12 weeks of their curriculum in terms of the subject matter. Uh, so they put shame and forgiveness. They, they had a session on shame and forgiveness. They said they tried to figure out where does this really belong in this series. And they decided to put it here towards the beginning of the series. And the reason they said is because so many people are filled with so much shame when it comes to sexuality that a lot of times they can't even hear what God wants to say to them. And that makes sense. And so we're covering shame and forgiveness today. So in the video sessions that our, our students watch on Wednesday nights, uh, one of the two hosts, the female host of that program, uh, talks about shame that she experienced from something that was done to her. She experienced it for years. And what had happened was that she had gone to a party in her early 20s, she had gotten drunk, and then she was raped. And for years, she experienced shame over that, and it kind of spiraled into other behaviors that were, self, uh, uh, behaviors that were self-destructive. And I can't recommend enough that you go and watch this session that our students are going to be watching and hear this story. And uh, we can give you access to that as we've been offering at various points. If you're interested in getting access to that and you don't have access to the videos yet, it takes a special password and all that sort of thing, write the word access on your connect, connection card, connect card, and we will send you the information that you need in order to do that. So, how can we overcome shame and receive God's forgiveness? Sometimes it means even learning to forgive ourselves or to receive forgiveness and not, uh, you know, beating ourselves up constantly. The key to understanding that is to understand, or the key to that is to understand God's antidote to shame. And we're going to look at three aspects of shame before we get to the an antidote. The third will be the antidote. So we're going to start with what is shame. We're going to try to define it, even though it's a very difficult term to define. Uh, we're going to talk about the grace of shame. There's actually some surprising benefits to shame, depending on how you understand what shame is, of course. And then finally, we'll talk about God's antidote to shame, the poison of shame. When we live in shame, the poison is so powerful that it requires a very powerful antidote. And God's antidote is a magnificent one, magnificent antidote. I can't wait to get there, but it's going to take a little while to get there. So let's start with what is shame? What are we talking about when we talk about shame? I think that understanding what shame is can help us experience forgiveness. Kind of being able to understand what's going on inside of us can help us understand forgiveness and can help us also to be able to know where to go in God's Word to understand what we need to hear and what we need to experience in ourselves. But it's not easy to define. Uh, it's used in so many different ways. In the Bible, the word shame is used in a, in a lot of different ways. Just like a lot of terms in life, uh, it, is, it has multiple meanings depending on the context in which it is found. 
So uh, it's used differently in the Bible. It's used in our society in different ways. We can use shame in everyday language in different ways. Sometimes um, psychology or pop psychology uses it in a very particular way, gives a very particular definition. Uh, anthropologists, sociologists, they look at cultures and they talk about non-Western cultures as being shame cultures. That's a whole different way of speaking about shame. And you can talk about our Western individualistic cultures as being very much guilt uh, based uh, rather than shame based. But I'm going to give you a definition. This is where I landed. This is my own definition, my own way of looking at this. And uh, the way that, that we're going to be looking at it, and just understand that this definition then uh, is a very particular way of looking at things, which then when I talk about shame, understand I might be using shame in different ways. All right. So uh, this is what I came up with is a little bit of a continuum. And, uh, and so you've got on one side, I'm defective, and on the other side, I'm embarrassed. And the thing that you have in common all along that spectrum is a sense of wanting to hide, of isolating ourselves or hiding certain aspects of ourselves from people. So on the one side, you've got I'm defective. That's kind of at the far end uh, of shame on this, this chart. In the sexuality curriculum that our youth are using, they use this definition, basically, of shame. And they don't muddy the waters with kind of using shame in other different ways, and that's, that's perfectly fine. They define it right at the beginning. They say, this is how we're talking about it. And they say, they, they, they define fame, shame by comparing it to guilt. They say, guilt is what you feel when you make a mistake or you do something wrong. But shame is when you say, I am a mistake. Guilt is what you feel when you've done something wrong, but shame is when you look at yourself and you feel, I'm defective, I'm, I'm, I'm a mistake. So that's the definition that they use. At the end of this spectrum, at this end of the spectrum, you feel like you're defective in some way. You feel like, like maybe you're unforgivable. Uh, as one of the testimonies in the video uh, the guy says something like this. He says, because of what he strugg was struggling with, a sin that was uh, an addiction in his life, he said, I felt like there came a point where I used up all the grace that God had for me. All right, so in this end, you feel like there is no grace for you. You've messed up too often. You've taken God for granted, whatever it is. That's where you are on that end. Now, this kind of shame can also come from things done to us that make us feel defective. And we could go on and on with a list of things, but this is what the host in the video describes. Something was done to her, and evil was done to her, and still it made her feel defective. It made her feel wrong for years. And so... Uh, the Bible uses shame in this way. It talks about people being treated shamefully who, having been treated shamefully, feel shame in themselves, feel like something is wrong with them. Now, at the other end of the scale, so this is going to be going beyond kind of muddying the waters a little bit, and the other end of the scale is what you just might call embarrassment. You might say, well, that's not shame. Well, we, we talk about it that way. We might say, I'm embarrassed or I'm ashamed. And I'll give you an example. Somebody drops by your house unexpectedly, and you've got something that you've got to give them, and you just feel a little bit wrong keeping them outside, so you let them in. And then you turn around and you see the place is a mess. And you're just like seeing your house all of a sudden through the eyes of the person who just came over. You can say, oh, I'm so embarrassed is how you feel. Or you can say, I feel, so, I feel ashamed of the mess that my house is in, the mess that I'm living in right now. Now, not everybody's going to feel that way, but some people are. You know, you invite, you know, a friend over to the house. If you're, you know, a student, um, you find a friend over to the house, and they, you, get, you go up to your room, and all of a sudden you see your room through the eyes of your friend. It's the first time they've been to your room, and they see it, and you see it, and you go, oh, you know, and you're embarrassed about that. So, most of the time, kind of a messy room, a messy house. That's at the far end. It's not, doesn't, need, doesn't necessarily have big implications on our lives. It's not like I'm going to, you know, this is going to destroy my relationship with someone or my relationship with other people or if I hide my mess, my messy house, like it's a big, big deal. It 
usually isn't. But it can. This kind of shame, this kind of embarrassment can have some pretty serious implications for our lives. For example, if we are embarrassed or ashamed to talk about our faith in our workplace or in our school, that has some pretty serious implications. Because for one thing, uh, we know inside that we're hiding something that's really important to us. And so we struggle with feelings of shame because we are embarrassed by our faith when it comes to some of our friends in the workplace or with some of our friends outside of the workplace uh, or whatever. And, And then we know that we're not living into God's mission that He's called us to live into. So I was talking just this week with one of our members, and she was talking about the opportunity that she has in her workplace to talk about Jesus. It's not a Christian workplace. It's, it's a regular job. But she says, if I get an opening, I'm going to take it. And she was talking about training this one lady in, and uh, she asked a question, and then the lady went there on faith and told her, well, you know, I dropped out of church a long time ago, and I really have turned away from God. Well, now she, two or three days a week, she's on Zoom with this lady, and they're reading the Bible together and having devotions together. (laughs) Because she, once the door was open, she shared her own story. And once she shared her own story, the other person was responsive. And and I I just just said to her, "You, you realize you are reaching someone that a pastor or a church, you know, a whole church as an institution, can't reach because she's walked away, but you're there in your workplace. Now, when we're embarrassed about that, when we feel ashamed of our relationship with Christ, that we won't even talk about it, it has implications that are pretty serious, even though on the scale, it's really on the low side of of shame. Now, here's the thing. Just even talking about this creates shame in a lot of us, right? Because they're going like, oh, yes, you know, I, I hadn't even thought about that. Now I'm feeling you know, a, a lot more shame. So it can become this, this kind of, of spiral where we're ashamed at work, we're not living into that, our mission for God, um, loving people in the best way that we can love them by pointing them to the love of Christ. And so now we're ashamed of that as well. So uh, shame can really control our lives. I heard a story uh, about a couple of years ago about a lady who was, it was in a podcast, she was being interviewed, and she was talking about, she's in her 50s, dating a guy. She says, she's dating him. He start, she starts to realize, we always end up in public places or over at my place. We never, I've never seen where he lives. And we've, we've been dating for a while. And so she starts wondering, is he really who he says he is? You know, maybe, maybe he's not even who he says he is. And maybe he's married. And she starts having all these questions in her mind, and eventually it bothers her so much that she says, hey, I want to go to your place for once. And he goes, well, yeah, I own a house, but, uh, you know, he starts giving all kinds of excuses, and, and eventually she won't take no for an answer, and he takes her over to his house, and when she gets there, she realizes what's been going on. His house is so filled with stuff that there are no seats, no place to sit down, and it's difficult to even navigate in that house from one room to another. So what, what's happening? You have a situation where this guy is experiencing um, embarrassment. Uh, it's similar to having a messy room or a messy house when someone comes over, but it's at a whole other level. It moves way over to this side of that continuum because now he is hiding his, a major part of his life because he believes that if she sees this, you know, he knows it's not healthy. He's been wanting to do something about it, but is unable to fix this aspect of himself. And he's so afraid that if she sees how he lives, she's not going to love him. And therefore, he's thinking, I'm to some degree unlovable. So what all these have in common, as I showed on the chart, is hiding. Shame causes us to hide. It can mean hiding to the point of living in isolation and without intimacy, which is what happens the further you get to this side of it, the more you think you are defective, you might hide yourself 
in such a way that you don't have really close relationships, you isolate yourself. Um, or it can be that you hide aspects of yourself, which is not usually really healthy uh, for a relationship. Some biblical examples that we could put on this scale would be things like this. The Apostle Paul uh, sends one of his co-workers named Titus, he sends him to Corinth. All right, this is a long story. There's two letters in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Uh, this is in 2 Corinthians that between those two letters, Paul has sent his co-worker Titus to them. And then he's come back and he's reported on the Corinthian situation, the, church, the situation in the church that Paul had founded. And uh, this is what Paul says as he writes the Corinthians after Titus has come back. Um, he says, we were especially del delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. All right, so that's, that's in a shame culture. If, if Titus had gone there and he had boasted and then they had treated him without hospitality and all that, it would have shamed it would have shamed Paul. But this is pretty much on the embarrassment side of the scale. It's not like it would have crushed Paul. It wouldn't have made Paul feel like he is defective or anything like that. But there would have been a shame involved, involved in it. And it's not even anything that he would have done to cause it. It would have been something that someone did to someone else after he had boasted about those people. All right, so more serious. Uh, Genesis 2, uh, 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Genesis 2. Genesis 3, after they've eaten the fruit. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Hiding from God. A sense that I can't even be in front of God because of my shame. That's getting way over to the left side of that scale. Jesus has parables where he tells parables about landowners and people representing the landowner and people who, who treat the representatives shamefully. And what he's talking about in those parables, he's talking about what is going to happen to him, how it is that his own people, who are the stewards of his nation, Israel, are at some point going to treat the owner or the owner's representative, Jesus, shamefully. And so there is that sense of shame in the scripture. Judas taking his own life after betraying Jesus, all the way in the left hand of the scale, right? all the way in the left hand, uh, just feeling there is no forgiveness, there is no grace for me. Uh, there's a blind man, the whole story of John chapter 9 is about a blind man, and Jesus healing the blind man. And so as they're coming into town, the blind man is begging, and he's asking for something, and the disciples look at the blind man, and they decide to ask Jesus a question that, that they've been just dying to ask, uh, apparently. And they say, who sinned that that man should be blind? Did he sin, or did his parents sin? Okay, so Jesus throws, that, throws all of that out, and the whole story is really talking about that sort of thing. It gets all the way to the end, and, and I mean, it runs the gamut of all kinds of things that, that this man goes through, and that Jesus um, takes these steps that he takes. Uh, but imagine living in a world where a disabled person, where there's two options for their disability, two explanations. They have sinned or their parents have sinned. Those are the only two options they gave them because that's, that's how they thought in their world. Imagine what it would be like to live in a world like that with a significant disability. You have a story that we'll come back to later about a woman who is constantly bleeding. And she comes, she sneaks up behind Jesus to touch the hem of his garment. She doesn't even want to know him to know or anybody else to know that she's in the company of people because she is considered unclean, and he, she touches, and, and she's horrified when Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? And so we'll look at that one in, in a few moments. Another shame story in Scripture, a story that, that 
you know, contains the whole idea of shame is when the young prodigal in the prodigal son story comes to his senses, he's wasted his inheritance in shameful ways, and he is now starving, and he thinks, I've got to go back home. I'll be, I can eat at home, and I'll have a better job at home. And so he saves face by coming up with a plan that he's going to go to his father, and he's going to say, listen, will you take me back as a servant? So we have this scale, and we have all these experiences that fit somewhere on this continuum, and that's, at least, that's how we're going to talk about it in this sermon. Um, and it can be very disruptive, and it can be very destructive in our lives and in our relationships when we, we don't deal with the shame that we have. It's going to be destructive, and it's going to be disruptive in our lives. Hiding from God, hiding from each other, hiding from intimacy isn't healthy, and it's not what God wants for us, and He wants what's best for us. So we need an antidote. We need an answer to this. But I don't want to get to the antidote too quickly because I want to talk, as I said, about the grace of shame, the surprising benefits of shame as you, you know, look at it on, on this scale. So a couple of benefits of shame. One is a sense of shame sometimes protects us and protects others. In this sense, shame can be a gift from God and a, a grace of sorts. Grace is an undeserved favor. A sense of shame can actually be part of the work of God's grace in our lives. So uh, a writer, Daniel Henninger, uh, wrote in the Wall Street Journal um, a few years ago. It was at the height of the Me Too movement. Uh, and he was commenting on the allegations that were being made against Harvey Weinstein, Charlie Rose, and Al Franken. And this is, this is what he says in the article in the Wall Street Journal. Can I have the next slide? Hopefully, I, yeah. Their acts reveal a collapse of self-restraint. But he says, it doesn't stop there. It's not that just these guys had no self-restraint. That, in turn, suggests a broader evaporation of conscience, the sense that doing something is wrong. So when one asks how these men could behave so boorishly and monstrously, one answer is that they have no shame. All right, again, this may be using it different than, you know, some books that are out there, some articles that are out there that, you know, you might hear Brene Brown talking about shame, for example. She's talking about a very specific kind of shame that can be very disruptive and destructive in a person's life. But shame in this broader sense, they have no shame. There's no sense of shame. Shame can, can actually protect us and can actually protect other people. When, when I read this, I thought, I, I just thought of the whole story of King David and Bathsheba in a whole new way, in a way that I never thought about it before. Because when he says this, I think this is, this is the story of what happened to King David. In the story, David sees Bathsheba bathing. She's probably clothed. Uh, she wouldn't be like exposing herself on a balcony. She's probably clothed, but she's bathing, uh, clothed. And he decides he wants to sleep with her. Uh, it should have been very, very difficult for David to sleep with Bathsheba. It should have been very, very difficult for David to ever sleep with Bathsheba. He's not a pagan king. Okay, he doesn't just get whatever he wants. This is the David of the Psalms. This is the David who dances before the ark. This is a David who loves God and has been a spiritual leader in Israel. So it should be very, very difficult. It should be very difficult because he's not a bacon king. It should be very difficult because she is the wife of one of his Mighty men, a group of like special fighters that fight in his army. They are, they are his, like, his top people, and they've been with him for a long time. They've been his friends. They've gone through thick and thin together. They've saved each other's lives. It should be difficult because they live in different worlds. Bathsheba and David live in different worlds. Okay, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, is just one of the mighty men. He's not like, he's not like a powerful man in society. He's not like a rich man in society. He's a soldier. So they should have very little different. They live in different worlds. It should be almost impossible unless David devises 
a really clever ruse where, you know, somehow he says to Uriah, Uriah, I want you to be one of, you know, I want you to be at my side, one of my, you know, I, I want you to be a bodyguard for me. Oh, and invite your wife over for dinner. And, you know, you, you can kind of imagine how it could have been, but that's not how it takes place. David simply instructs his servants to bring her to him, to the palace, and he sleeps with her, and everybody knows what's happening. He doesn't even hide it. David gets her pregnant. He instructs his top generals to get Uriah, his top general, to get Uriah killed. That general instructs these other people to go into battle with Uriah and at a certain signal to pull back from him so that he dies. <laughs> I mean, think of the servants and the soldiers he shamelessly involves in his scheme to sleep with Bathsheba and then to clean her, to kill her husband. Think of his shamelessness towards Bathsheba, a married woman, as he does this power move as a king and brings her in and basically, you know, just from most definitions, he is raping her. Think of his shamelessness with Bathsheba. Shame could have protected him. Shame could have protected Bathsheba. Shame could have protected Uriah. Ultimately, because of the results of David's sin, shame could have protected the people of Israel and David's entire family and how his reign ends. Shame could have protected him, but he has no shame. A sense of shame can often protect us and protect others. Now, you, some people may say, well, that's not shame. That's something else. No, but we speak of it in that terms. Have you no shame? Okay, so it's according to a certain definition. It's a scale, but it's a sense of shame. This is wrong, and it would be so embarrassing. It would just be so embarrassing. It would be so, oh, I, I, you know, I just got to. I can't, I can't go in that direction. It would just, oh, it's just be so destructive to my family. It would be so destructive to another family. It would be so destructive. It would be so shameful. Shame can protect us and can protect others. A second grace of shame is shame can use, God can use shame as a check engine light in our lives. So I got this idea from Trish Harrison Warren. She's an author, an Anglican priest. And she, she goes out of her way at the beginning of this article to talk about the destructive aspects of shame, because shame can be very destructive. But she says this, she adds this, she says, I'd like to suggest that there is another kind of shame akin to the pain in our bodies, a natural indicator, a check engine light that signals that something is spiritually awry. So about a week ago, Lois had a warning light come on the dashboard of her car. We looked it up when she got home. It was that there was a bad tire. I get the gauge out. I check all the tires, and I find one of the tires is at about half what it should be, um, which can be very dangerous, right? I mean, if I need to take a sharp turn, if I try to avoid hitting somebody or something, be very dangerous, especially if that tire gets even lower. And you say, can't you notice that? Not me. <laughs> Lois will go, I hear something. And she can hear things I can't hear because she can't hear well. Like she can hear low noises in a way that I can't because they're being covered by other things. And she said, I was hearing this, this noise, you know, in, in the tire. And so we're getting new tires, all right? So check en not a check engine light, but a, 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 you know, a warning signal that something is wrong. Something is wrong. God uses shame in that same kind of warning as a warning signal in our lives. So an interesting passage is earlier in the Corinthian relationship between Paul and Corinth. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, Paul is dealing in the whole first four chapters with an arrogance, a spiritual arrogance that's happening and creating disunity among the Corinthians. And he, and he tries to make this part of his point by saying, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. What's the foolish thing? A Messiah that goes to a cross and dies as a criminal. That's what he's talking about there. So he does that to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. What's Paul doing here? He's actually trying to shame the Corinthians. Saying, look at yourselves. Have you no shame? You ought to be ashamed of your, your, your 
uh, behavior, your way of thinking, what it's doing to the community, what it's doing to your witness for Christ, you ought to have a sense of shame about that. Warning, warning, feel some shame so that you can come to God and you can receive His forgiveness. Paul is literally trying to shame them. Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. What does Jesus do? He says, okay, any of you, they're going to stone her to death for being caught in adultery. He says, any of you who has no sin, you can throw the first stone. (laughs) What's he doing there? Have you no shame? Here you're coming in this kind of judgment to execute this woman, and you have sin in your life. Have you no shame? Jesus and the woman that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, a woman comes in, Jesus is eating with a Pharisee in his home. This woman comes in, disrupts the whole meal. She's crying over Jesus' feet. She lets her hair loose. She's dropping tears. She's wiping her feet, his feet, and she's put perfume on them. And all this is going on, and everybody's like horrified. And, and you know, Simon, the Pharisee, is horrified by it. And Jesus realizes what he's thinking, and he tells him a story. And then he drives it home by saying, I came into your home and you didn't wash my feet, but this woman is washing my feet. And he lists the things that he didn't do that were just the kinds of things you do in that day. And he didn't do any of them. What is he saying? He's saying, Simon, you ought to have some shame for the way that you've treated me. And on top of that, you're a man who loves little. That's where the whole story goes. You're a man who loves little. You love God very little. You know why? Because you think you have very little to forgive. He's trying to shame him. It's a warning light. Something is wrong spiritually in your life. Again, some people may call that something else, but that's using the definition that we're looking at. Even if you go to the left side of that chart that I showed you and you say, I'm defective, there's a certain grace in that. Because guess what? If the Bible is true, every single one of us is defective. If you want to say, we're not defective, then then there is nothing that the Bible can say to you in your arrogance. I'm not defective. It's, It's the number one thing that when we're arrogant, we need to hear that, yes, we are not what we ought to be. We don't think the way we should think. We don't desire the way we should desire. We don't act in ways that we should act. We put ourselves first over and over and over again in our lives. All that being said, it's never God's intention for us to live in shame. He may shame us, but it's never his intention for us to live continually in shame, in hiding. So what's God's antidote for shame? God's antidote to the hiding that shame induces depends in part on where your shame is on the scale. Can we get that slide up here? It depends on where your shame is on that scale. So, next slide. If your shame is on the embarrassment side of the spectrum, God wants you to grow, actually to care more about what He thinks about you and less about what people think about you. Okay, if, if we're kind of destroyed inside because someone sees that we have a messy house, warning light, <laughs> maybe we should care less about what this person thinks and we should be concerned more with what God thinks about us, his love, his uh, unconditional love, his loving us in spite of the fact that we have a messy house or maybe that we always live in a mess. All right, so if it's on that end of the scale. Uh, Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians as well. So some of the Corinthians were very critical of Paul. They were divided. Spiritual arrogance created some pro-Paul and some anti-Paul factions within the church. And he won't have either. You know, it's like he's not going to play to the pro-Paul people. He doesn't want pro-Paul. He doesn't want anti-Paul. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. So he's saying, you're judging me, my spirituality. You're judging my spirituality. I could really care less about your judgment on me. All I care about is God's judgment on me. 
That's all I care about. And even though I know I'm innocent, um, or he says my conscience is clear, it doesn't mean that I'm innocent because he knows he's not. And he tells us all about it in, in his writings. It is God who judges him. He concerns himself with God's estimate and God's perspective more than their estimate or their perspective. Paul knows that Jesus went to the cross for his sins. We spent quite a few weeks uh, looking at Romans 1 through 4 uh, not that long ago. And he knows that Jesus has died on the cross. He's not afraid of God's judgment because Jesus has taken God's judgment for his sins on the cross. It matters to him. It matters to him uh, relationally what people think, but he is not going to be shamed by what people think or by their judgment. Scott Sauls, who uh, served for years under Tim Keller in New York, now pastors a church in Nashville, I uh, heard him being interviewed a few years ago, and he said he learned how to respond to criticism by watching his mentor, Tim Keller. He said, uh, Keller would often say, and he said, I saw it lived out in his life, he would often say that when criticized, do two things. First thing, somebody criticizes you as a pastor or as a human being, whatever, somebody criticizes you, the first thing you should do is look for the grain of truth. Is there a grain of truth, something that God wants to get through to you, about you? so that you can confess it, so that you can make that right if it needs to be made right. But then he said the second thing to think about is sometimes, you know, somebody's criticism is based on faulty information. It's not even, it's not even true. I had something like this happen recently to me. And, man, it just played around in my brain over and over and over again. It was a comment someone made um, just in the last two weeks. And I just kept thinking about the second thing that Tim Keller said which is when somebody criticizes you in some way that's completely unfair, just think in your mind, you don't know the half of it. What you're saying isn't true, but I'm way worse than that. I am. I'm way worse than you can possibly imagine. And so he says when you, when you look at it in that direction, you're, you're kind of looking and you're saying, okay, okay, um, I, I have other faults, so why am I getting so upset? because this person has pointed out a fault that is actually not true in this case, but true in so many other cases. Um, we can care more about what God thinks than what others think. We can do that only because of God's grace. We can care more about what God thinks because He forgives us in His grace. We don't have to hide from Him. We can't hide anything from Him. He accepts us and He loves us. Okay, so second, if your sense of shame persists, and it's still kind of on the embarrassment side of the scale, look for the idol behind the shame. Now, imagine the Apostle Paul being criticized by the Corinthians if Paul had done what most of us pastors do, which is that we make an idol out of our ministry. It's a hard idol to, uh, to detect it's a hard idol for people to criticize because what's your idol? Ministry for God, right? But it's not really God. It's the ministry, my ministry, our ministry, how it makes me look, that kind of thing. Now, imagine if Paul were caught up and had made uh, a, an idol out of his ministry. I mean, the Corinthians were so bad. <laughs> um, and if they were being critical of him, how easy it would have been for him to, to grab onto those who were pro-Paul and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to encourage these people and we'll go after these other people together. Uh, but he kept Christ central, not himself. He didn't make an idol out of his ministry. So when we are on the embarrassment side of the scale, sometimes, and it persists, Sometimes it's because we've made something more important than we ought to. Somebody's opinion, our job, our success, whatever it might be. Now, some common idols that might lead to hiding and embarrassment circle around, a lot of times they circle around perfectionism, where we want to be seen as, you know, kind of perfect. Um, but there's other idols that are constantly vying for our hearts as, 
One of the reformers said, our hearts are idol factories, constantly forming idols. Now, if your shame, thirdly, if your shame is on the I'm defective side of the spectrum, think of that, that spectrum again, uh, face the God who runs towards you in your shame. Instead of turning away from Him and hiding, face into the God who runs toward us. This is the magnificent antidote to all of our shame. God runs to us in our shame. God runs to us in our shame. You you don't have to turn away and hide. Face Him, admitting any guilt that you have, or talk to Him about the pain from someone else's guilt, something that someone has done to you, or something that the world, that just life has done to you. You don't have to turn from God. Receive His forgiveness in Christ. So the the story of the prodigal sons is so instructive. The prodigal makes, the young prodigal makes his plan of going back. He's going to tell his dad, you know, I don't deserve to be your son. Just turn me into one of your hired hands. And what actually happens is beyond his imagination that it could, that it could happen. And so I'm going to pick up the story. I, th- I think I might have some of it on the screen here. I'm going to pick up the story in verse, halfway through verse 20, where it says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. This is a picture of God. This is why Jesus is telling this story. It's a picture of God. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, didn't even let him finish, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Jesus wanted in this story to imprint on us through a story, a picture of God's response to our shame and sin. He wants this picture to be imprinted on our minds. This is a powerful story of the father running to the son before the son can even get there. The, the father throwing a party before the son can, can, you know, give his whole story, hire me, you know, as one of your hired servants, doesn't even let him finish. It's powerful enough when we read it, so much more powerful in the first century. The hearers of the story would have been shaking their heads. Any of the religious leaders, let's, put, let's say not the hearers, the religious leaders would have been shaking their heads at where the story has turned. Because what the father does in running out to the son is considered to be unsightly, shameful even. He has to hike up his, his robe. He's going to expose his legs. He is an older man. An elder does not run, period, in that culture. They just don't run in that culture. But he is willing to scorn the shame of running to his son just to tell him how much he loves him and to receive him back. Jesus offers this picture of God. Christian philosopher Greg uh, Esloff writes this. He says, the maker of heaven and earth is in a full sprint, robes and all, to embrace you, kiss you, put a ring on your finger, and throw a feast in your honor. You are of immeasurable value to the one who matters most. You are so valuable that the God of the universe suffered the indignity of limited human form, betrayal, public humiliation, and naked crucifixion to rescue you not just from, a, from guilt, but also from the shame of your condition, all to enjoy an eternal life of friendship and communion with you because he wants to enjoy friendship, communion, fellowship with you for all of eternity. Sometimes our shame is based on something that's been done to us. Think of that story of the woman. Do I have that on the screen? It's in Luke chapter 8. If not, I'll just, okay. So as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. Next slide. 
When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people. She told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. He calls her daughter. In Hebrews, the passage that we looked at earlier, here's what it says. It says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Public execution, pain, blood, naked in front of everyone. He was willing to scorn its shame. The cross was meant not only to give extreme pain, the cross was calculated to shame the criminal. To scorn the shame of the cross means he didn't allow the shame of it to keep him from pursuing it. He was willing to experience the shame of being stripped naked and accused for our sakes. As we approach the subject of sex, no matter what what we've done, any shame that we may feel, we need to face into God, the maker of heaven and earth, who is in a full sprint to embrace us, to kiss us, to welcome us home, to call us son or to call us daughter. Let's celebrate that as we begin our response together by celebrating communion together. We take the bread remembering that he bore our sins on his body. His body was broken for us. And we take the cup remembering that his blood was shed for us. Father, we thank you for the incredible love that you show towards us that even when you shame us, you don't want us to live in shame. You want us to turn to you and receive your forgiveness and receive your joy and receive your love and live in that. Father, I pray for anyone who's having trouble really seeing that, feeling that, sensing that because they are so beaten down by something that's been done to them or by their own failures. I pray, Father, that you will Bring them closer to seeing your great love. Even if it's just one step closer to seeing that and experiencing that. We thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.